I would give two of my left fingers for this data. Data Stories is supported by Tableau Software, helping people see and understand their data. Get answers from interactive dashboards wherever you go. For your free trial, visit Tableau Software at tableau.com slash data stories. That's T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash data stories. Hi everyone, Data Stories number 56. Hey Moritz. Hey Enrico, how are you doing? How's it going? I've heard you've you've been you're having better summer in Germany than uh, in New York. <laughs> you're starting with the weather again. It's a strong opening. Yeah, the weather is yeah. real bad. <laughs> it's horrible. I'm, I'm it's wearing fun. I'm wearing a scarf. That's not good. Yeah, no, we don't have a scarf issue here. No, but yeah, not very sunny though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What so can I do? Perfect. Perfect yeah. weather to record a podcast inside. Right. It's perfect. Yeah. 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 What have you been up yeah. to? Any news? Um, no, <laughs> not <See>? really. <laughs> Pretty flat and boring. Yeah. No, I'm I'm doing some work, but no, no major yeah. news. No scandals. No excitement. No scandals. Let me think. Yeah. Same no, here. I'm just same holding here. up. Yeah. Trying to progress with a project. Yeah, it, that it's that part of the year. Yeah. It's like that. The pre-vacation um, finishing up time. Yeah, I'm not sure when I'm gonna have vacation, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> fine, fine. Pre other Don't people's complain. vacations, maybe. Well, my my family is leaving soon. No, yeah, to Italy. I'm so jealous. Yeah, but then maybe you can finally get some work done. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there is this whole theory that you can do more work when you have a family rather than less. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. You have more motivation, maybe. I don't know. No. Or maybe it's just bullshit. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Anyways, I would say, yeah. as we don't have much to say, let's let's just bring our guest on. So yeah. today we have a super special guest, and it's Amanda Cox. Amanda Hi, Cox. Amanda. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Great having you here. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> you set a high bar with the introduction of weather, <laughs> and there's nothing going on. So. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> what else yeah. could we now talk about? You know, it's all being said. <laughs> Amanda, can you introduce yourself? I think most people know you, but still, it's, uh, yeah, you can. Well, uh, I am a graphics editor mm -hmm. at the New York Times, uh, one of dozens, and uh yeah, I have a background uh, in statistics before the time, so the work that I do tends to be a little bit more statistically oriented than some of my colleagues who are, say, better artists or developers or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And did you, did you, what was, how did you end up at the New York Times? Did you study statistics and then directly go into journalism, or did you do different things in between? What, what was the story there? Yeah, I was in I was in grad school and I hated it. Uh, <laughs> so the first year that you're in statistics grad school, they don't let you touch any data at all. It's all epsilons and Greek letters. Uh, <laughs> and so I didn't know what else I wanted to do with my life, but it wasn't epsilons and Greek letters. Uh, and so I started applying for random things in part just to see what I would be disappointed when by when they rejected me. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of them was to be the Times intern on the graphics desk that summer. And so I, they were in a, Steve Duenas was in a think outside the box mode. Mm -hmm. Why not hire an intern who doesn't know any of the skills that we use <laughs> in our work? Uh, and so I, I spent the summer as an intern. Then I went back to grad school. My second year of grad school is better because ah. uh, they let you touch data. But near the end of that, I got a call. They said, hey, we have a slot. Do you know anyone? I said, I do. I know her very well. Uh, and so that was, that was how I fell into the Times, right? Mm -hmm. The internship program was my... Introduction to it. And at the time, would you say you were the most like technical or statistical minded person on the on the team, or when definitely not technical? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe maybe proper statistics. Uh, you know, is, is certainly probably the most you know formal definition of uncertainty or whatever. But uh, mm -hmm. definitely not definitely not technical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Because there were a few hackers and, and coders uh, sure. around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, Matt Erickson was, uh, you know, doing who knows what, and Bill McNulty was doing fancy stuff so with maps at the time. Uh -huh. and, you know, sure, so, yeah. Yeah, but it's true. I mean, you, you won't see so many trained statisticians in newsrooms maybe in the 90s or something, right? Because it, it seemed a bit remote from, uh, yeah, what a typical journalist profile might be, right? I mean, there aren't a lot of, I think, trained statisticians in the 90s in the world, period. It's a, it's a field that uh, has grown amazing. Like, you see the people who talk about their undergraduate program enrollment in statistics, mm -hmm. and uh, those charts are all, you know, they're exponentially growing uh, at a lot of the big schools. So, uh, but yeah, you're right that, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it used to be a really unsexy job, right? Like, it's like, yeah. And, and yeah. now it has this I don't huge know if it was ever unsexy. Uh, especially for, uh, you know, it was, I was always, I feel like actuary was always rated like, you know, most charming career that you can like make a <laughs> solid chunk of money and go home at five o'clock without any stress. Yeah, that's or, that's true. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and Amanda, when did you start doing, um, creating charts and visualizations right away or that has been a development over time? Uh, yeah, so my very first uh, job after college, I worked as a as an RA at the Federal Reserve Board, uh, and there, sort of, your price of admission is supposed to be to make the briefing charts uh, for the economists. They have you know these meetings with mm -hmm. the with the chairman, and they bring these books of charts. Uh, and if you're a good RA, I think you're supposed to kind of hate making the charts, uh, and then but you do that 50% of the time, so your other half of the time you get to spend on your research or whatever, right? Like I only liked making the charts, uh, and so and then you know when I was in grad school, I got myself into a point where I'd acquired like three or four different research assistantships. Uh, and instead of doing the work I was supposed to be doing, the statistical work, I would just make what I would call like the art of the week, uh, which was just like, you know, a chart uh, that fooled people into thinking I was actually working because I couldn't, you know, juggle all these properly at the same time. Uh -huh. uh, and so that, uh, I think, both of those, uh, you can tell a coherent backward-looking story in terms, of, in terms of making charts. So I think... I think it's cheating a little bit because I think, you know, there's probably a hundred different things I could have ended up doing and you could tell some kind of coherent story, mm -hmm. if, you know, you, you yeah, cherry yeah, pick yeah. your In evidence. In hindsight, it, it always makes yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and is it making charts something that you got or learned out of school or something that you learned afterwards or just on your own? Just curious to hear about, because I'm, I'm not aware of how uh, um, degree in statistics work. But I know that statisticians have been developing a lot of interesting um, charts and, and in general, there is a lot of research on visualization on the statistics side. So I'm curious if you also get taught this, this kind of stuff in school or not. I had just one class. It was like an elective class. Uh, it was taught by a guy named Thomas Lumley, who's a, a brilliant statistician and a hilarious man. Uh, but it was a a not very much work kind of elective, uh, and so it wasn't. Uh, it was not the most rigorous part of my statistical education. <laughs> and um, so, and how long have you been at New York Times right now? I think it's been quite a while, right? Ten years this summer will be my anniversary, nice. and I know that. I know that only because my first week Hurricane Katrina happened, uh -huh. uh, which was a, uh, <laughs> a gentle introduction to that's the graphics quite a department. Start, yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> ten years this summer, a long time. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and you use mostly R for uh, at least for developing the the like exploring data and developing your your basic visualization ideas. Is that right? I do still do most of my, you know, sketching, you know, we've acquired this data or we need to acquire this data from somewhere on the internet. What does it look like? What, how might we approach it? I do most of that work in R still, not all now, but most of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is it because the tool, um, is it like mostly you, it's, it's one tool where it gets so fluent that it's just fun to work with? And could it also be with another tool, the same relationship or... Or is it something about R and uh, the packages it offers or the workflows that you think make it uniquely like actually the best tool for, for the type of work you do? Like what's your experience with R and also how it, how it evolved over the years? I guess you have followed the development quite a bit. 
Uh, yeah, I think for me, a lot of it is just being fluent. I think there's nothing, you know, particularly special about R other than it just being the greatest software on earth. Uh, so, but there's, you know, I'm not actually using R, uh, for many of the things that R is great at, you know, we're not usually fitting very complicated models, uh, or, or doing that kind of work, but I think Part of it is fluency, and but part of it is some of the choices uh, made in R, you know, being written by people who don't really care about data structure or care about want to allow users to, you know, do whatever they want uh-huh. with data and reshape it, and you know, sort of that kind of that was sort of mm-hmm. things that come for free are useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the idea like I don't want to draw my own axes; I want you to draw them for me, right? Like that, some of that kind of stuff, stuff that comes for free. Those decisions, I think, are are uniquely delightful in R. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how is it organized? So it's a little, so it has its own programming language, right, and its own idea of how data should be structured in order to work with it properly. So it's. Um, I think it largely doesn't care how data should be structured. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, so there are, are things like data frames, uh, which I can think of as just an Excel spreadsheet, yeah. uh, you know, rows and columns functionally. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the data frame, I think is a, is a, you know, languages that don't have a data frame. I don't understand how anyone does anything interesting in them, uh, especially with, you know, structured type data, things that are, are rows and columns, uh, you end up just like hacking together your own version of a data frame if it doesn't come with a data frame for free. Sure. But, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And then there's lots of packages, right? It's all different libraries, or is there like a technical term? Yes. Probably. Yeah. So thousands of them, and some people claim that's that's like some of the success of of ours development. But I think it's really interesting now uh, what's going on in that space. Uh, and there's a lot of people, uh, me included, who have worked basically the same way in R for a very very long time. Uh, and in the last six months, year, year and a half, I don't know. Uh, there have been some really great packages. So Hadley Wickham sort of an R celebrity, uh, but I'd never fallen into the Hadley verse before. Uh, <laughs> but his latest You mean stuff, Hadley Wickham? Uh, Hadley Wickham, yeah. yeah. Uh, his latest, uh, he has a package called Dplyr, uh, which you can, and some other people's works too, uh, that there's this idea of chaining commands together. So, mm-hmm. You know, first I sort, now I filter, then I mutate some columns in my data. And that stuff, uh, you know, for the first time is, is really fun. And there's other people working on stuff that that makes R feel a little bit more natural with the internet. Uh, Hadley is working on some of that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that workspace is exciting. So I think, you know, R is becoming a lot more of a grown-up for the type of work that we do. Uh, it's changed a lot, I think, in, in the past year or so, like... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you've been using it from from the very beginning, or there was something that you used before? No, from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I always wanted to get started with R because everybody, you know, is like, "Oh, you have to use R; it's so cool." But I never got yeah. into it really because exactly this whole like ecosystem was so like overwhelming. I think it's a bit like so. I do web development a lot, and I know that ecosystem quite well. But I could imagine if you get started with that, it's the same as like. There's a billion libraries that do basically the same thing, but 90% of them are broken and you have to figure out which and it's super complicated. And and then I felt you have to learn a lot um, by heart or like, yeah, just learn these commands from that package. And if you use a different package, they're different. That's like, oh, it, it seems like a, a big a big hurdle there. Do you have any tips like how to get started if if you're confused as I am? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, so many people are, are Hadley fans, and so mm-hmm. you could just decide, Stick you could functionally decide for work. our work, I am only going to reuse packages written, ah, libraries written by Hadley, and that's it. Idea. Like, it would be one, yeah. like, and that would get you, like, of the type of work that we do, that would get you, you know, 95% of the way to done. Uh-huh. Uh, and so stuff would work, like, kind of consistently. Or just stick in stay roughly in in base r like base r does 85 percent of the work that we do so mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. no no libraries at all just i only want points and lines and text uh and i've been sort of that way for a while too like you know like uh we're not doing stuff that's that complicated we're, mm-hmm. we're merging data and filtering it and whatever like you can do that with a with a dozen commands mm-hmm. i i scraped my uh not scraped i, I you know i processed all of the r code i had written at one point uh 
And there are only, you know, a hundred things I use all the time. So ah, so you were looking for which commands you use the most? Yeah. Ah, like, that's super yeah. interesting. Cool. <laughs> good idea. Meta-analysis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good tip, though, like sticking with like one guy and then get into his mindset and then, you know, it makes sense, hopefully. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a good idea. But, so I, I might yeah. give that a shot. I'll, I'll let you know how it's it goes. It's time more. It's, you'll like yeah. it. <laughs> but cool. I have to say that this is the kind of, a tip that I give to people who want to start doing visualization, mm. that there are so many tools out there and you can get attracted by all of them, but it's a huge mess, right? I think it's it's much, much better to stick with one and learn it very well. And especially another part of it is rather than choosing something that is new and is going to disappear tomorrow, I always say choose between the few very few options that are out there that probably are going to be here in a, in five or even ten years right and there are not many that have these characteristics yeah that's true yeah and now would you output what do you output mostly with R? like would you like output mostly pdfs and and then review the pdfs and annotate those or um or do you output like interactive um little dashboards or what's your typical the product you you would produce with R? Yeah, no, mine is mostly PDFs. Uh, and so uh, if you're making a print graphic, that's great because mm -hmm. you can just open it in Illustrator and clean it up. Uh, and if you're making a web graphic, it's well, PDF is a little disappointing because <laughs> now you have a place to start. Uh, so that's a, uh, but uh, even I am a believer even for sketching in things that we call like poor man's animation uh, mm -hmm. and poor man's animation is just like holding the page down key down on a pdf <laughs> and, uh, your own flipbook yeah but you can uh, scrub really back and flipbook. forth and yeah yes. i mean pdfs do have some advantages for sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh you know if you're if you want to make like you know deeply interactive work it's it's probably not the best way to start uh, <laughs> yeah this is actually a question that i had for you because i think the only big limitation I see for doing visualization uh, with R is that as soon as you need interaction, it seems to be very, very limited, right? I mean, people have changed that, I think, a lot in the last year. So Hadley works at a company called R Studio, and they have this thing oh, called yeah. Shiny, uh, which allows, oh, yes. you know, it's not the best interaction. And there's another guy uh, blanking on his name who does this stuff that, like, you know, hooks up R to D3 in a really graceful way if you're just making the same type of scatter plot mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Like, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, some of that, you know, people are making, I feel like, uh, real progress currently on, on connecting R to the web in a, in a deeper way than it has been before. Yeah. Also, Tableau can make calls to R subroutines, basically. So if you want to do complicated statistics in the background, you know, you can, yeah, write a R routine that, Calculate something, gives the results back, and these things that that's super interesting. I think, yeah, because many of the tools are so isolated and and all have their strengths, and yeah, that's kind of cool. So, is there uh, Amanda? If the, if some of our listeners wants to start with her, do you have any yeah. suggestions where to start? Maybe if there is a nice tutorial you like, or I don't know, whatever, a book maybe. Yeah, I think I just go the R Studio way. So mm -hmm. you know, download R Studio and just do whatever Play with they, it. Yeah. whatever it is they tell you to do. I'm sure there's an intro there uh, somewhere. I think you know, for learning though, uh, you'll never learn anything if you try to learn that way. So for learning, <laughs> it's like have a problem that you actually want to solve. Uh, and so the best R problems are problems where. Uh, first, I need to scrape some data uh, off the internet, and then I don't know what it looks like, but I want to try on eight different chart forms mm -hmm. uh, and or just sort of explore the data, I think, is are the best sort of like, at least in our space, the best learning with our uh, kind of things. And so some of the advantages from that, like, you know, that you can scrape and plot and analyze uh, and clean your data all in the same place, uh, that's some of our strengths from my end. So like figure out the project that it is that you actually want to do that fits those those categories and then become an R disciple. So is there any other major tool that you guys use at New York Times other than R? Or R I mean, is sure. like the I mean, overarching? You know, D3 is the obvious oh, yeah, uh, for yeah. all of the interactive work. Uh, and then other people, uh, you know, you, you spoke to Gregor, I think, about some of the charting tools he's made for very simple charts where you, you know I just want to make a, a bar chart. So some internal tools for that. All of our print work and many of our web mockups go through Illustrator. 
uh, we'd be lying if we didn't pretend that Excel was a workhorse in the department. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) So, and um, how does this work at New York Times? So can you describe a little bit um, what is the process, how a new piece uh, starts and uh, how do you get to the final graphics? I'm sure a lot of listeners are curious about what's the process there. Sure. So I think the process happens in a bunch of different ways. Uh, one graphics editor is attached, at least one is attached to all of the major desks. And so they go to their meetings uh, and increasingly we do, we do our own work. So here is an issue that I think is important to the world or here is a news event that we need to respond to. We've always sort of done our own work on, on breaking news because uh, there's not really time to coordinate. Uh, so we have a meeting in the morning uh, around 10.15, uh, or Steve, or Archie, or, or someone else who leads the desk says, you know, here are the paper's priorities for the day. Uh, how are we going to respond to them? Uh, and then uh, those of us who are not working on, on something daily go back to, you know, work that may run this weekend or two weeks from now or sometime, unknown time in the future. Uh, and the, the work, it, it's often small teams, uh, you know, two, three, four people, uh, whose skill sets overlap, but usually someone is, someone's a stronger reporter, someone's maybe a stronger designer, someone's a stronger developer, uh, and so it's very collaborative, kind of, but those teams are sort of organic, uh, in terms of just what an idea needs to get done. And I guess, at least for some projects, one of the main problems is also finding the right, the right data for, for the problem that you want to, sure. right? I remember, yeah. I think I, I met Kevin Quilly a few weeks ago or days ago, no, weeks ago. And he was telling me the, this interesting story about a recent piece that you've done on Upshot. Um, I think it was on what people eat at, um, what was it about? Star- Chipotle, probably, oh, Chipotle, like how right? many calories are <laughs> yeah. people and, are. Yeah, and which is hard. How do you get this data? And I guess there, there, there are instances where finding data is probably straightforward and other cases where you have to, I don't know, maybe even give up. Yeah, I think my favorite ones are where the data is not a struggle. Like I'm totally uninterested <laughs> for the most part in in data that like you can just, it's the result of your first Google search or whatever. Those are, those are not our, you know, Sometimes if you have something clever to say about it or some, some news peg to attach it to or something, but those, uh, the acquisition or the acquiring of the data, the figuring out what their fallback plan is for that one, uh, in particular, you know, our fallback, Kevin and I were teaching a class at, at NYU at the time and our, our fallback, fallback, fallback plan was that like that week's homework assignment was going to be to make all of our 20 <laughs> students go figure out like, you know, each t- are responsible for 20 people's Chipotle orders or something. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, engaging with the world and, and pe- the most interesting data uh, is probably not your the data that's comes up on, after your first Google search. So. so do you have any interesting story about data that has been particularly hard or, or I don't know, fun <laughs> to find? Hard or fun? Uh, huh. Here's a fun one about like sort of just acquiring with technologies. A, a few years ago, I talked about this one a lot, but... Sean Carter wanted to know where trailers come from in movies. So, you know, do, are the scenes in the trailer, do they come mostly from the beginning of the movie or the, or the middle of the movie or, or the, the end of the movie? And so he had set up uh, some code to, you know, essentially test it, to, to reduce the images uh, to, you know, their edges and then to just test, you know, does black and white uh, from the trailer match the black and white stills from the movie? Uh, and one of them we were really struggling with was Argo. Uh, uh, it was a, a Best Picture nominee. I think this was in 2013. Uh, and I assumed it was just because, like, Sean's code was bad, <laughs> right? Like, I, he'd never done, like, edge matching before. Or, you know, image process. Not, not a ton of image analysis. I just assumed he didn't know what he was doing. Or the other problem was that, like, uh, you know, the movies that we were we didn't have the movies from the the most official sources in all cases, so like you know, who knows what what was going on? But it turns out that the the trailer for Argo, uh, they're cheating in a few places. Uh, so, for example, there's a scene uh, in the movie uh, that shows the Hollywood sign in California. Like it looked like in the 1970s, the movie set in the 1970s and it was like falling down in disrepair, <laughs> like half the letters were like on the ground. Uh, but in the trailer, they just show like the Hollywood sign now uh, uh, because they all they want to do is like read ah. Hollywood. Uh, and then... Uh, so they used the, scenes that were not in the movie, actually. 
Yeah, but but very similar. So there was a one scene of of people looking at a TV screen, and in the in the movie, it was a woman who was a leader in the Iranian hostage crisis who was who was in the TV screen. But in the trailer, they just swapped that for mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter's face, uh, just because uh, it reads better. It reads as seventies or Hollywood, not as like what is that? I don't understand. Whatever. It's uh, actually quite so smart, right? It's like, so the... they really thought about the trailer, <laughs> like all the they sweated all yeah. the details. Yeah, nice. I mean, it was a fun one in that we learned things through the acquisition of data that I don't think we would have learned if we could have just called up a publicist and said, like, tell me where the mm-hmm. trailer comes from, like what scenes in the movie does it come from? But then, so, uh, you know, Sean has acquired some of these image processing skills, and so then we applied them to a, a, a story about uh, forgery in, in Chinese art, uh, you know, a couple <laughs> of a year later or six months later or something. And so I thought it's both a fun example of acquisition and also the the tools influencing the the kind of or your skill set influencing the kind of work that you do yeah and then technology also becomes your journalistic um tool tool more or less to to actually find something out you know which which is pretty cool yeah yeah (laughs) and i think in the case of chipotle you ended up doing like scraping something online no, one no. of our one of our colleagues, uh, Ellen McLean, had gotten a huge uh, data set from from Grubhub for a different story oh, uh, for yeah. just like an enterprise project uh, several years earlier. So Ellen had you know not worked at the Times for maybe like three years by the time we ran the Chipotle graphic. But when we couldn't get data from an official source, we said, "Well, we have this huge data that Ellen got." Uh, just lying around that we'd never done anything with and there were there were, you know thousands of chipotle orders in, in that data set that's a good time to take a little break and talk about our sponsor this week this week data stories is supported by tableau software helping people see and understand their data tableau lets people connect to any kind of data and visualize it on the fly Databases, spreadsheets, and even big data sources are easily combined into interactive visualizations, reports, and dashboards. In the latest version, Tableau 9, you'll find features that make the product smarter about what you're doing. From a new start experience with data prep tools, to more analytics features and smart maps with geographic search. And across the entire analytical flow, they have invested really heavily in performance and new features to help you share your findings and collaborate with data. So what is your data trying to tell you? To find out, get your free trial at tableau.com slash data stories. That's T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash data stories. And now back to the show. So shall we read some of the questions that our listeners posted? Uh, There are some interesting ones. Maybe some of this stuff we covered already. Um, Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think this is from from Mushon. Um, So Amanda Cox said, annotation is the most important thing we or they at New New York Times graphics do. Can annotation itself become interactive? So I think probably the most consequential graphic of all time has interactive annotation. Uh, do you know which one I'm talking about? Do you have a guess? Interactive annotation. Yeah. I think it depends what interactive annotation means. I'm not even sure. <laughs> so I want to claim that uh, the GPS dot on your Google map or, or whatever it is, uh, <laughs> is the ultimate uh, important and actually changing the world, like a uh, kind of version of interactive uh-huh, annotation. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, if you don't buy that that is real annotation, then I can say, well, you know, Google will let me know in text on the map that you have a restaurant reservation here tonight, or not because I told Google, but just yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. in my email. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah. I think for sure uh, that is I think like it's a, an annotation. An, like an the, you mean the blue example. dot, right? Like where you are, right? Yeah. Yeah, the where you are. Uh, I, yeah, I think. Sure. And yeah. I think it's super interactive, right? You move and it yeah. and it updates. Uh, and so I think that's the, the like the uh, you know people are doing. Uh, so if you think that's cheating, I think there's there's lots of like, other examples too. Uh, so uh, Jake Barton in some of his mm-hmm. museum work is doing this kind of cool stuff where they uh, are trying to teach kids about physics, and so. 
essentially how it works is the kids just do whatever they want and then they they draw stylized lines on top of you know the path yeah, of the ball wonderful. that they threw uh automatically yeah. uh and so that yeah is, so that's basically uh, dynamic annotations maybe right it's like you 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 don't just have like a static text pinned to a position in the graphic but somehow you're reacting to what the user does or what the the context is of an information query and then yeah. you construct an annotation right so you also recently had this yeah. article where the the content well actually the text contents of the whole article changed um, depending on the user selection in a map right can can you tell us a bit more about i don't yeah. i can't recall how much you were involved in that project but it was a new york times project for yeah, sure yeah so Yeah, Kevin and Gregor and I and some others, uh, Matthew mm -hmm. Block and some some of our colleagues in INT, uh, worked on a map about essentially what are good places and bad places for kids to grow up. So if you have to grow up poor, if you grow up in some places, you end up doing better on average than you would if you had grown up yeah. in a different place. Uh, and so we, I think we know or we suspect uh, that the way, if we just show people a, a U.S. county map, uh, the way you interpret it is you see like, oh, what does my county mm -hmm. look like? Uh, and then, you know, learn about the broader world first. But we, so we decided to sort of invert it on this one and say, like, let's not show you the map and force you to interact with it. Like, and in some ways, uh, just get rid of interaction altogether uh, and say, let's just guess about what you care about most based on where you're reading this from. Uh, so we'll geolocate where you're reading from and just show you a very zoomed in map mm -hmm. for your area. Uh, and then, you know, update the text uh, in a relatively straightforward way. Uh, so I, I don't know if I consider that example annotation, but then after we did that one, we did another one uh, off of the same research where we asked people to, to draw a chart for us. Uh, and we talked about annotating that drawing. Um, we, we talked about annotating that drawing as you were drawing it, like, you know, directly <laughs> in the chart, but there's just, yeah. there's hot, no, hot, like to tell cold, you, you know, cold. here's what you're doing. So yeah, but, uh, and we, we could have, we just, but, The problem is there's no space for the annotation on mobile, right? You know, immobile has killed annotation in some ways uh, because, you know, you just don't have room to say anything interesting. Uh, and so uh, we, you know, we killed that idea and just put the, t the same text that we would have essentially put like on your drawing inside of it, pointing to something just below, uh, but also like a little bit dynamic. Now, I wouldn't call either of these mm -hmm. like super dynamic, you know, there's baked out combinations, mm -hmm. but... Uh, yeah, but it was fairly it. sophisticated. I remember Gregor posted part of the logic sometime on Twitter and there were like 10, 15 different categories of curves you tried to identify. Like, is it more S-shaped or is it consistently um, below or above? Yeah, the <laughs> there were 10 or 15 different types of curves. There were, you know, basically three types of lines and then some like, uh, then or four types of lines and then some edge cases about whether you did weird stuff at the beginning or the end of your line. So wasn't so crazy complicated. So, yeah, I, th I think it was fairly dynamic. Tell us more about the project. Uh, uh, I think it, it's it's been a super surprising and an extremely fun project and not all of our listeners uh, might know the, the basic um, basic idea behind it. Oh, sure. So uh, there's these researchers uh, at Harvard on this one uh, and they have this amazing data set. I would, I would give like two of my left fingers for this <laughs> data uh, uh, about how much people earn, and they've been able to link that uh, to mm -hmm. their parents' earnings for basically everyone in the in the United States who's who's around my age, so who's around you know 30, 35. Um, and so this data, the the drawing example uh, was, what's the chance that you go to college depending on your parents' mm -hmm. income or your parents' income rank too? So you know if you're you were raised in the Uh, 25th percentile family, you have this percent of chance of going to college. And the chart is just amazing. And so they, the part of the reason it's cool is because they have so much data. Lots of people have done this exercise for, for quartiles or quintiles. Uh, but that's, you know, you get four data points, five data points. It's not, it's not that, that sexy. But so they have, you know, they did it for, for every percentile. So they have 100 data points. And they form essentially a, a perfectly straight line, which I find just mm -hmm. mind-blowing. Uh, the idea that you know, it's there's some you know, 
you know, of course it's averages and there's a lot of variation in between, but the, on average, uh, the, the power of classes is, is so straight, right? Like it doesn't top out the difference between being raised in the 10th percentile and the 20th percentile is the same as the difference between being raised in the 80th and the 90th, mm -hmm. which I find just like a crazy idea. But then the question is like, how do we make this chart that's like a straight line and tell people like, be excited about ah, this, right. right? Like have your mind be blown yeah. about that. Like, cause it's just a stupid, you know, it's just, it's perfectly straight. It's not that yeah. interesting. And it's, it's actually like, exciting statistically, but it doesn't look <laughs> exciting, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Like it's like, it's like the fact that it is linear is amazing <laughs> to me, uh, you know, linear throughout the whole income spectrum, yeah. you know, not basically linear in the middle, but like just linear, 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 linear. Yeah. Uh, I think it was actually, you know, Kevin's idea. He was like, well, what, what if we just ask like uh, famous people, you know, smart, famous economists to, mm -hmm. to do it for us? He had a couple in particular he was thinking about, mm -hmm. uh, but then that just evolved into like, what if we just ask everyone to do it? Uh, so... Yeah, because if you had asked celebrities or like, you know, famous people, it's sort of shaming then, you know, like, oh, they are so wrong, right? Sure. And if yeah. you try it yourself, I, I think what's so smart about it. So the site asks you to draw the curve. What do you think? Like, how is the curve looking? And then comments on that and shows you the real curve, but also shows you how others have drawn. So it's not just presenting you with facts, but first of all, asks a question that really forces you to think through, like, what is my model? Like, you know, can I develop a model in my head now of how I think the world works in this little, like, um, question? And then also compare that, like, to, to how other people think and so on. And I think that this type of knowledge sticks so well, right? Where you actually had to, where you were, like, hypothesizing yourself, like, oh, how could it be? Is it, like... Is it like an S-curve or is it like yeah. exponential? You know, and suddenly you learn so much about statistics uh, because you have to apply it yourself, right? Yeah, there's some there's some cognitive psychology. I tried for like a half hour before we published this project to uh, to find it and to say, you know, what people who you know do this professionally mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. think about this sort of stunt. Uh, and I didn't come up with anything great, but after we published there were some... Uh, some education professors and others who, you know, talking amongst themselves on Twitter uh, were passing around some interesting papers about how how it's in a lot of teaching, it's better to actually get it wrong first, you know, struggle with it yeah, and then right. fix it yeah. at the end. Right. Uh, so. Yeah. And, and often people have this idea that then you have the wrong conceptual idea in mind, but I absolutely agree in my experience. If you if you're ever actually struggling with something and then finally you succeed or, you know, and, or finally you figure it out, it, then it's there and it's, it doesn't go away anymore. Yeah. Jake Barton, I also saw he had this really nice slide. I just saw the photo of the slide, but it was also about this phenomenon that if you tell people the answer straight away, like if you just present facts, you know, then people forget the question. <laughs> and actually the question is the whole, the exciting part, right? It's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you, if you just answer this question straight away, the, the question itself becomes totally irrelevant. Yeah. It's solved. Yeah. yeah. yeah which has quite a lot of implications on the way we teach in general, mm -hmm. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So many, so, how many responses did you get? It was quite a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think I forget how many. So we have we're saying I think a hundred thousand people roughly on on the version of the graphic that we publish right now. But that's mm -hmm. only people who were logged in and registered. Uh, we did something a little bit different with people who were anonymous. So uh, you know, logged in and registered plus anonymous is is a lot bigger than that. So hundreds of wow, thousands. Wow. Wow. So actually, you could now do a whole social like uh, study on how people think reality is. <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, Kevin uh, did do a follow up post the next week nice. about you know what people. How, That's perfect. What people thought. Yeah. 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 So shall we read um, another question? Yes. Uh, okay, we have some few ones from Scott Murray. Um, so let's start from the first one. How has launch of Upshot New York Times changed your workflow? And I think there is another one that is similar to that. Probably we can do mm -hmm. them together. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so the Upshot is sort of like a, a section at the New York Times, I guess, in some ways. Uh, it has a handful of reporters attached to it, uh, people who are experts in the economy or politics or healthcare or uh 
gender and technology. Uh, and so uh, we're, you know, a relatively small section within the Times. Uh, and so I've been attached to it for, for about a year and a half now. Um, one of the ways where I say uh, it's changed things for me, uh, I'll tell you, tell you an anecdote, is that I, I like to say, like, we have a little bit more freedom to what I, I sometimes call, like, making things up. Uh, and and David David Leonhardt, uh, who's the editor of the Upshot, uh, he he hates when I say that. So he calls it analytical judgments. Uh, and so you can tell why why one of the two of us uh, used to be the Washington bureau chief for the New York Times, and, and one of us is a one of us is a graphic editor. Uh, but uh, I think we have a little bit more freedom uh, in making some of these analytical judgments. So the example. Uh, or one of the examples that I'm proud of is uh, on election night. Uh, you know, we're sort of doing a little bit of live analysis of the results as they came in mm-hmm. uh, to say, you know, like, given what we know so far, here's how we think the night might end up. Uh, like, that kind of an exercise uh, is uh, one of the ways I think the upshot is maybe a little bit different. The other way, obviously, uh, you know, Gregor made us uh, made the Times this tool uh, called Mr. Chartmaker that enables reporters and the upshot reporters are the ones who get access to this tool uh, to make their own charts uh, to essentially say, if you want to put a bar chart in your story, uh, that's great, but I don't want to spend my afternoon on it. Uh, and so uh, that has changed, I think, our, our, our interaction in some ways. So both in good and bad ways, right? Like the good way, obviously, uh, you know, they do not interrupt me when I, they want a bar chart in their story. Uh, in a bad way, I think uh, we sometimes miss some opportunities that the graphics editors and other sections would have picked up on about, like, here, here's you have a stub of an idea, and that, like, you know, would result in, in a totally different idea that I can make something really cool out of. Uh, and so, but that is is one way the upshot is works differently than the the rest of the times right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how, how do you see this developing? So there's also, of course, um, 538, Nate Silver's uh, sort of maybe similar um, uh, data journalistic publication. And and then there's the upshot. These are, I guess, the two big data data journalistic um, platforms at the moment, right? And, and how do you think will this develop? Will they stay the same in character as they are now? Does that affect also maybe like do you do now all the data heavy stuff and the New York Times becomes a bit more lighter in data or um, how do you think this develop this relationship will develop or is it no, basically the same I'm but just different um, um, presentation or how do you see the, the relationship? Yeah, I don't think upshot graphics are like aggressively different from or even different at all mm-hmm. uh, from the rest of the New York Times graphics. I also think that like most data journalism is sort of a hmm, do I say this in a polite way? Uh, the <laughs> like I, I think data journalism is successful when you don't need the adjective. So you know I've said before that like uh, the more adjectives you have, like the less power you have, right? Like you never want to be like the assistant deputy vice president or whatever, <laughs> or you know that like you know yeah, that yeah. gay marriage is real when it's just marriage, right? Like you don't need the adjective in front of it. So uh, yeah. I think data journalism is only successful when it's when it's indistinguishable from from journalism, journalism. Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. <laughs> But still, I mean, Upshot and Five Thirty Eight, they have a data flavor to them, and I think that's that's the idea, right? It's like. These sure. are data-ish yeah. um, outlets, right? Yeah, I think that is, uh, you know, Nate Silver's conception of journalism uh, is that, it's, it's, or, you know, the journalism that, that he is good at is, is very data-focused. Uh, I think that Upshot uh, has many reporters who are, who are, you know, on the spectrum of, of that attitude, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. though obviously we believe that, uh, you know, I'm basically indifferent to the mechanism behind your story, mm-hmm, right? Like, mm-hmm. I always think, for example, like, you know, whenever a New York Times story has to tell you how many interviews it conducted, uh-huh. like, to me, that's an inter- a signal to stop reading, right? Mm-hmm. If you have to say, like, the Times spent six months talking to 85 people, that's just <laughs> saying, like, and we didn't find anything, so we just have to impress you by, like, how much hard yeah, we tried. We actually right? tried like, really so, hard, but still like, didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right? Like, because if you found something cool, you would just tell me the cool thing. You wouldn't tell me that, like, we had to talk to 85 people, you know, like, whatever. Uh, and so I feel the same way about, like, data. Like, I don't care, really, like, how you get to, to truth, uh, if it comes from 
quotes or if it comes from a spreadsheet or whatever. Like, I find that to be not the really interesting part. Like, the how. The how part, I think, is, like, not... I don't care that much about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that means you trust your journalists quite well, right? It's like, if you say, well... The exact method. I, I don't even want to go there, or I don't even want to know how large the sample size was, because I, I trust these people. No, I think you still have to. You know, you're still showing. It's a different type of evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm saying that I'm not by default. I don't value some types of evidence ah, more yes. than other types of yes. evidence, right? Like you still need to lay out your case about why, uh, you know, why this is a proper view of the world and why these mm -hmm. people know what they're talking about and how this data was collected Got and it. methodological issues. Yeah. Uh, you know, you still are doing, you know, you're arguing with evidence, but I don't think there are certain types of evidence that on their face are, you know, blanketly better than, you know, for certain types of problems. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. but no, sure. You could have like a, a million data points be horribly wrong. Like, and, sure. and even, you know, you do the right thing technically. Yeah. But there's like this huge bias in the data set, or you totally missed one obvious, like, um, yeah, just flaw, and, and then it, the whole thing breaks down. You can have millions of data points. Yeah. Or it doesn't really mean what you think it means. So yesterday behind me, Jeremy Ashkenaz was looking at yeah. hate crimes uh, reported in the United States. And uh, different jurisdictions do it differently. So apparently there was only mm -hmm. one in the state of Mississippi sure. uh, for a whole year. Uh, so, you know, like it's not the data isn't actually about hate crimes. It's about the reporting of hate crimes. So, you know, like all of all of those kind of issues. Mm -hmm. How do you yeah. deal with that? Like, uh, how much do you think about what will people think when they read that as opposed to you knowing something is factually right? Like, have you ever stopped the factually right stories because you had the feeling... People might get it wrong. Sure. Or try, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I'm sure there are. Uh, yeah, sure. I think I'm odd ways about like, that's not how I actually interpret this. Mm -hmm. uh, or hmm, I'm trying to think of a good example. I don't have one off the top of my head, yeah. but yeah, I mean, the interpretation of it is, is super important. Yeah. 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 I just had to think of like the Guardian had, had like a, actually quite nice interactive application where they would show all the, well, nice in this context is not a good word, but it, it was about police killings and like who, you know, who was killed by police and, and technically they had all the statistics right, but for instance, they, they just reported the percentages of victims and then the race or the ethnicity. Yeah. But it would probably have made more sense to relate that to the share of population as well, like, you know, so because in their data, it sounded like there's not many Hispanics and many blacks affected. But if you would relate it to the actual share in the, in the, in that population of that ethnicity, it's much higher. So yeah, these are all these things. Like if you just report the numbers and, you know, not, you're not super careful about how they will be read, then you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And even then it wouldn't be perfect because um, the the process behind data collection for these kind of data sets is very complicated. Right. Right. Yeah. There, there, there are huge biases in how things are reported. Yeah. Um, should we continue with the questions? More questions, Scott? yes. yes. <laughs> so he has two more. One is, I don't know exactly what he means, but he just says thoughts on teaching. <laughs> I don't know if he means... Um, yeah, how to teach visualization or something like that? <laughs> I think you may know. I uh, A couple of weeks ago was at IO and oh, okay. we walked back at night. Like the, the nighttime venue was like a half hour away from the hotel. And, and we walked back uh, together one night and I was telling him the story about. Uh, so Kevin and I, Kevin Quayley and I teach a class at, at NYU. Uh, in the journalism program, uh, sometimes science, sometimes Studio 20, sometimes other things, uh, about data, largely. I wouldn't call it data visualization necessarily, but I was telling him that I think the days that we go in like totally unprepared, uh, not totally unprepared, we go in like a surgeon, right? Like we call it like going in like, you know, like I've prepared my whole life for this, so I just show up to do what I'm trying to do. Uh, I love that. Those days I think are, have a tendency to be like way better classes, like both more fun, both more pedagogically engaging, both people actually learn things more uh, than days where I spend like 
four hours preparing some, you know, guided bullet point tutorial of, you know, like when I, you know, like they were like classically super prepared. So I was, I was telling him, uh, that I find there's this interesting thing, like it's like inversely, like how much you like prepare on paper to like how good it is, uh, which is, uh, Maybe that's the, maybe he actually wanted a, a straight answer about teaching, but uh, yeah, that's no, what I think of. No, but, <laughs> that's what I think of in the last week when I think of. of no, but Scott I have to say this: this totally resonates with with my experience as well. I mean, as soon as I just try to be the professor and just uh, spreading my wisdom through through the classroom, <laughs> it just doesn't work, <laughs> right? But if you if you manage to start with a couple of interesting questions and you make it clear that not necessarily you already know the answer, it's just an exercise that we are doing together, then everything gets so much more interesting. I have to say, for instance, in my I've been teaching my visualization course three or four times already. And the part where I see my students learning a lot is really like when they show me what they've done. I sit next to them and I say, hey, look, you should have maybe you should try this and that. And they learn so much faster this way. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I present slides for 10 days and then I ask a question, I'm always disappointed by the answer. Right. So I think that's a very interesting um, thing that happens when you teach visualization and probably it's not only with visualization that this happens. Yeah. And uh, the next question was how to tolerate uh, Kevin Quilly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Poor Kevin. <laughs> we uh, should have him so, on the show sometime. <laughs> uh, Kevin and I say that all of the bad parts of ourselves are the same. Uh, and then so there, there are also, you know, Kevin has many good parts that are unique for me, but uh, all of the bad parts of us are exactly the same. And so I, I tolerate him. But we also, uh, so we used to joke for a long time uh, when we disagreed about something uh, that uh, there would be a chapter in our memoirs called Disagreements, right? But lately, uh, lately that joke has evolved into like, so it's no longer just a chapter in our memoirs. I think our memoirs now is just titled Disagreements. And so it's like, you know, chapter, we'll stick this in chapter four of, you know, not our chapter seven or, you know, so it's, it's, uh, no, but, you know, so Kevin and I, uh, were both attached to the upshot. We sit, uh, you know, two and a half feet from each other. Uh, we teach together, uh, my, uh, so Kevin is a Kevin is a good friend of mine. <laughs> so, but uh, on a on a little little more serious note, so you've been talking about disagreeing on something. I'm just wondering now. I guess it happens sometimes, or maybe even often, that during the process of creating a new piece, you disagree. So not just you and Kevin. I think in general. So what kind of disagreements you guys have? Is it more on sure. the story itself, on the interpretation? on the way to visualize something. I'm just curious about that. Yeah, so uh, Kevin likes video. I hate video. Uh, <laughs> Kevin, I like complicated things. Kevin likes tables. Uh, what else? <laughs> what are the other classic ones? Uh, you can make a complicated oh. table. That's, <laughs> you've done <laughs> yeah, that no, in the past, actually. Complicated tables are the worst kind of tables, right? <laughs> if you're going to make a table, just make a table. Oh, that's like the worst position to be in of all time. Do you guys have any favorite chart? Chart type, I mean? Uh, we're calling 2015 the year of the histogram. Uh, I think the histogram <laughs> yeah, is uh, an interesting... Uh, example of how defaults matter a ton in software. Oh, yeah, uh, so, you know, histograms, they teach them in kindergarten. Like, no joke, that's one of the first charting forms you ever yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, how many of us are six, how many of us are seven, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then they die at some point. And I think part of the reason they die is because it's not easy to make a histogram in Excel. Uh, and so <laughs> uh, I think the histograms are a, a fun example of... Uh, ways defaults in software uh, change people's approach to the world, uh, even when they're uh, not necessarily, you know, aware of it or, you know, not like, you know, by like not necessarily biased against Instagram, so it's just biased because it's hard uh, in the same way that like for a long time I was, you know, biased against Bezier curves because they weren't trivial in R uh, for, you know, <laughs> the, the kind of like how how defaults influence what you think about. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear from you. What's your take on um, complicated charts or more than complicated type of charts that may be effective, but people don't know how to interpret right away. I think there are, there are a, a 
quite solid set of chart that you can expect people to understand, at least to some extent, and some other chart types that people have probably never seen, right? So how, how do you handle that? Mm, maybe, probably not. I, I, I say it a lot, but I'm, I'm a fan of maximizing uh, what I call net joy. So if you, <laughs> if you cause like one person infinite joy or understanding or whatever with your chart, uh, and like the rest of the world is numb to it, it's possible that that is better than, uh, <laughs> you know, just doing something that like almost all of the world is like slightly above numb to. Uh, and so I, in the maximization problem, that is these decisions, I, uh, I'm a fan of arguing for net. And whereas a lot of people I think are fans of arguing for minimum, uh, and that difference between net and minimum, I think changes a lot of how you think about things. Yeah, you can easily show that in a histogram, by the way. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, Shall we come to Lynn's questions? Let's go there. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead. the Moritz. first one was uh, Amanda: Do you have any burning topics of interest that you would like to work on, but you cannot get the data for? Sure. So, I mean, I think, I, you know, I said this earlier that like data that is really great data is not on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I think all, I'm interested in all kinds of data that's, you know, the proprietary data that people actually make decisions off of, uh, whether that's, you know, your Walmart target Google driverless cars slash medical policy, whatever, uh, all of that kind of like, you know, at any data that people actually make actionable decisions off of is is stuff that I'm, I think I'm kind of jealous of. But let's um, say you were working then at Uber or, you know, some other company that has like super deep, interesting data. Wouldn't you then be bored? Sure. Because then it's also like readily available and just too easy to get. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, after six months, maybe, yeah, right? Yeah. Like you run out of, uh, you're like, oh, but then it stops being like Uber. It's like, you're like, oh, my Uber grader is great, but it'd be really great if I can merge it with proprietary data right. from, yeah. you know, whatever other place yeah, or, you yeah. know, like, uh, so, uh, you know, it's always like, you're always attracted to what you can't have, mm -hmm, right? Like mm -hmm. it's like the grass But the, let's say at the data sets you can easily find on the internet, are you not interested because you would assume the they have been explored already sufficiently or or the low hanging fruit is maybe already like you know done or is it more yeah, like I mean that's not that that's the, not entirely the true is either part of the the whole experience for you uh, that's uh, you know I'm I'm exaggerating when I say that but you know some of all of those things so a lot of you know a lot of my best work probably really is commodity data so mm -hmm. I don't know what data stories episode it was. The video one where you talked about uh, Gregor with about 3D yield curves. Like, you know, that data is all just sitting on the internet. Right. But I still think yeah. that's a cool chart. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm being unfair when I, <laughs> when I say data that's on the internet is like cool. But. Yeah, yeah. And Lynn had a second tweet. Another big question. Um, what are the current hard problems you see in Viz? Beyond visualizing uncertainty, which is sort of the default answer to that. Yeah, I mean, I think in part uh, forcing ourselves to work on problems that actually matter uh, mm -hmm. is not the easiest thing. Uh, and I was trying to think about why that is any different for visualization than for you know anyone else in the world. Uh, you know, because they're hard, because whatever. But I think there is something interesting about the visualization, and that by default. Uh, the really easy stuff for us is the questions about like what and where and when, uh, you know, visualization of different types is really good at answering those kind of questions. Uh, but the, the why and the how questions I think are always like way more interesting and important. Uh, but in visualization, those kind of devolve into unfun things because they're either, you know, they're estimates then, so you don't resonate with what the units are mm -hmm. or whatever. And so I think there's some, uh, but the the why and the how questions are always way better questions, uh, you know, questions that have consequence and questions that matter to the world. Uh, and so, I don't know, there's some like eyes on the prize thing, I think, that is difficult about visualization. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the, the ends up that the, you know, the best answer for guiding policy or whatever is really the best form for that is a, is a bar chart or something, you know, with some uncertainty bands on it. Uh, but that's not necessarily the, you know, a two-line bar chart is not, like, doesn't, you know, 
Yeah, and this is by the way. To like... Oh, sorry, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just saying that this is by the way where people uh, um, fight the most, right? On why and how things happen, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I mean, because it's you know, there's there's interpretation problems and there's estimation problems, uh, but those are really the interesting questions, I think. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, in many ways. Maybe you need to think more in terms of illustration and explanation and storytelling and you know these these types of things. If if you yeah, the more you go into these these how and why sure questions. But then it's just right? this yeah. mushy thing like this mushy universe that you invented in your head, and mm -hmm. there's like arrows flowing from who knows where to who knows where that like you know has no like grounding in anything other than exactly and this is maybe why we dodge this a bit and, and just concentrate on the what because there we have it's more our like the, the home turf <laughs> yeah <laughs> it is what it is yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so you mean the hard problem is actually to be relevant could you could you actually say that like to or to yeah, yeah to, like struggling with this okay we can plot a lot of data we can actually like analyze lots of data but how how can we make our work actually 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 relevant <laughs> yeah i think so it's you know i think it's a it's a question people struggle with and you know people are always pointing to like john snow or something he you know he didn't fix cholera with his map that was marketing mm -hmm. material uh you mm -hmm. know totally like he knew the answer and then he needs some marketing material and so the you know the question is how can we how can we work on problems that you know actually change change thinking or change behavior or help us make better decisions or that you know eyes on the prize kind of like how do we work on stuff that's important mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. issues that are actually important as opposed to gravitate towards data that's readily available on the internet or easier to like fits our forms we're interested well whatever mm -hmm. So do you know, do you have any visualization in mind that can either come from New York Times or other sources that you think had some degree of, of impact on people's lives? Mm, I'm going to go back to my, you know, the, the Google map, right? Like, mm. and the driverless cars that are going to result as exhaust from the Google map, I think, uh, is going to save hundreds of thousands of people's lives. Yeah. So yeah, it's the, not the actual visualization, it's not the looking at the Google map that does it. Yeah, the question of impact is always a tricky one because I am pretty sure that there are lots of things happening out there that we are just not aware of, right? So not sure. I mean in, in a lot of organizations and uh, even among scientists, there are lots of things happening that are at least partially done through visualization that have a strong impact, but we just don't know it, right? Sure. And I think that probably the, the visualization that they're doing, not in all cases, but in many cases, uh, is not going to be, is going to be the type of like, you know, four lines, uh, four lines on a chart, uh, or that, you know, the, the most important sort of work, uh, is, is not always the most interesting visualization, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I have to say, I had a revealing moment some time ago, I think one year ago or so, I was giving a presentation here at NYU, and one of my colleagues from, uh, I think he's a computer scientist slash biologist, I was arguing that we don't know whether visualization is having an impact in some domains and so on, especially in science, right? And he was raising his hand and saying, wait a minute, I can give you so many examples in biology where visualization was part of the process and had a huge impact on people's discoveries and communication of scientific knowledge. So it's definitely not true. It's more like that we, we just don't see these things. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we have one last question, right? So we have one from Petra Eisenberg. I'm not totally sure I, I understand the question completely. So Petra asks, favorite design tools in the spectrum of data stories that offer free interpretation to unambiguous messages? So I'm choosing to interpret that, and we are sorry, Petra, if we're wrong, uh, about uh, what are the favorite design tools uh, ranging from, you know, kind of more exploratory graphics to more explanatory graphics. Uh, 
And I'm going to stick with R across the spectrum because uh, it's time for more it's to learn. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, I can't think of anything better at any point uh, other than the very, very, very final end. Uh, I also, I think, uh, you know, in the Times, uh, there was a part where the the Explorer graphic, there was a phase three or four years ago where the Explorer graphic was kind of popular. It was like, we can put some filters and some sliders and some something. Uh, and that phase, I think we've grown out of that phase. Uh, we've grown up a little bit or phones have caused us to just disregard it a little bit. And so I think we, it's possible that I'm going to miss the, the exploratory tools just because we don't do very much of that work anymore. Uh, and, uh, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and also the tools market it's is really evolving. But as we said before, it's everybody has like their tools that they are fluent with, and that's such a huge value. And you know, if you have like an environment yeah. that you're happy with and you can just work, <laughs> it's such a big value. So I also feel like yeah, we might be missing lots of great tools. So maybe we should have one day a show on all the the new web based tools popping up, and maybe we discover something new. Who knows? Though whenever, you know, academics in particular ask me, you know, what should they learn? What should they, I always say like, whatever it is that you're always already using. So I really hate <laughs> context switching. So like, oh, if yeah, your yeah, people is a Stata people, make your graphs in Stata. And if your people are R people, do it in R. And if your people are web development people, just use your sketch in D3 or what, you know, like whatever. I feel like right. wherever you already are is the best tool. So I won't learn R. <laughs> no, maybe, I don't know. I think I think in some ways some of the most interesting tool work that's going on right now, yeah. uh, and this is also something I should have said that's different about the upshot earlier, is I think we're uh, integrating words, not in a fancy design way, but just like, here's a paragraph, here's a chart, here's a paragraph, mm -hmm, here's a mm -hmm. chart. Uh, and yeah. so like the stuff that came out a couple weeks ago, I think from... I'm going to say it wrong, bestiario uh, or whatever, like the quadrogram maybe yeah. it's called. Yeah. Uh, that idea that like uh, we're really just using ex expository tools and so you should be able to write your paragraph and dump your chart inside of it and then write your next paragraph and make a chart and it shouldn't be like a bunch of switching or, you know, it shouldn't feel aggressively different. Uh, I think those kind of tools are interesting. You know, I know someone in... And Jeff Heer's group uh, at the University of Washington was working on uh, more uh, kind of Google Doc style creation of charts. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. some of that like collaborative stuff, like not sort of like GitHub, uh, you know, tag team kind of merge conflict that will fix it. Like sort of, <laughs> but real, like, you know, more kind of Google Docs. So like uh, the barriers are a little lower yeah. and it feels a little bit more collaborative. Like that stuff I think is also like interesting in the tool mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And, and Quadrogram, I found that really interesting, too, because it offers simple charts, but it has this idea of there's a document and the document consists of a mixture or a sequence of, of simple blocks, right? And yeah. this is something I think we all now learn to appreciate with all the mobile devices and, you know, and all these different consumption situations. And we used to do this huge monolithic, super detailed blocks, yeah, that are super integrated, which is nice too, like, you know, a double spread print page or something. But now we have to think more about how we can, how can we chop it up into sequences of little blocks and, and Quadrogram has, has a really interesting model there. So yeah, we should talk about that one maybe as well. Yeah. Do you know how the tool from Jeff Harris group is called? Is that something that's available or is it currently being developed? I think it's someone's research project. I think it's uh -huh. someone's dissertation. Uh -huh. So it will come out at some point maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good too. Great. I think we have to wrap it up. We're uh, good. Yeah, over an hour. It was great talking to you. So cut something. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it all in there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it was all good. Cool. Thanks uh, so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Amanda. Amanda. Bye bye. 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 Data Stories is supported by Tableau Software, helping people see and understand their data. Get answers from interactive dashboards wherever you go. For your free trial, visit Tableau Software at tableau.com slash data stories. This is T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash data stories.